Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome to Insight LA Long Beach uh, Sunday Sit. We're going to be talking today about 37 um, practices of the Bodhisattva. We started this a couple weeks ago, and so this will be part two, but if you did not come to part one, no problem. It'll be, uh, we're going to do some review and then jump into the verses. Uh, my name is Casey, uh, I'm an instructor for Inside LA. Happy to be here with all of you. Thank you very much for coming out. So how many people brought the, the printout of the 37 practices that we did last time? Two people. <laughs> well, this is awesome. So we'll be, um, <laughs> we'll be doing some sherseys. I, I did bring more, um, <clears throat> but uh, we're not going to have an, enough. Of, but uh, yeah, we could share. So no, no problem at all. So I'm actually going to hand out, there's going to be two handouts, and I'll start handing out one uh, on this side of the room. There should be enough in this packet for everyone, and then on this side of the room. So just to, just to begin, for those of you that were not here <laughs> for the first round, this is a a Tibetan, uh, Tibetan Buddhist text written by a 14th century uh, monk who was an incarnation of the Buddha of compassion. So the Tenrezig or Avalokiteshvara emanated in the 14th century and he was this really profoundly compassionate, amazingly kind um, monk. And he kind of condensed the Bodhisattva's uh, way of life by Shantideva into these 37 verses. And what's amazing about these 37 verses is they could be seen as an outline of the entire path. And I'll back up a little bit. And about what is a bodhisattva. Their conditioning is on, by the way. This is not one of those on-purpose suffering moments. Um, a bodhisattva, uh, the short definition would be a being that can at any time uh, reach enlightenment. So a bodhisattva is a being who incarnates solely for the benefit of all beings. So as a being that can basically be completely enlightened, merge with the infinite, no need to incarnate in a physical form, maybe an avatar, um, be another name for this, an enlightened being that doesn't partake in the full enlightenment for the beings of other, for the benefit of others, right? So but bodhisattvas are said to go into hell realms on purpose 
and, and will stay in samsara until all beings are freed. Right? To do whatever it takes until all beings are freed. And so on a relative level, level we can aspire to be bodhisattvas or have a bodhisattva intention that we're here to reach enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And that we can make a bodhisattva vow. And the bodhisattva vow is that I'm going to, to stay and do whatever I can for countless eons until all beings who are limitless are freed. So it's quite a far-reaching like, vow. Or it's kind of not, not a small deal, right? Uh, and in the Mahayana tradition, this is uh, a, a Buddhism the Mahayana vehicle called the Great Vehicle, this is very core in the teaching. This is very core. And whereas the Theravada path might take the Eightfold Path, uh, the, the Bodhisattvas uh, partake in following the Six Perfections, which are in the, these verses, practicing the Six Perfections, uh, which are really, really similar. So that's kind of an overview of of what is a bodhisattva. And, and again, this, this motivation, they said that somewhere along the incarnations of the Buddha, that he had an opportunity to become enlightened. And he saw somebody um, do a kind act in front of him. And it was an extremely kind act. And when he saw that, he thought, you know, I, I'm not going to reach enlightenment just for myself. That would be wouldn't have much purpose. I absolutely need to reach enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And they said if he didn't have that intention right then, he would have been enlightened on the spot. But being that he said, I, I want to do this for the benefit of all beings, then it actually took him longer to reach enlightenment, but the enlightenment was absolutely complete. So they said that if we reach enlightenment just for the benefit of ourselves, it's not complete. There's still a, a little stage to go. But it's for the benefit of all beings, it's complete, it's full. And also with the intentions, it is said that whatever intentions we make before our enlightenment, if we do it for the benefit of all beings, the moment that we're enlightened, you know, all beings get a strong taste of that. In fact, they say that Chenrezig, or the Buddha of compassion, being that he made such, or she made such strong intentions before enlightenment, because of that, once enlightenment was had, all those infinite blessings have come to fruition. The chant, for example, Om Mani Padme Om. Even, they said if a, an animal hears Om Mani Padme Om, it could have significant blessings because of the strong intentions of Chinrezig before enlightenment happened. Right? It's very, 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 very blessed. So that's just kind of the overview of it. So I just want, I'll just go, kind of go over the, the, the two different things that, that we have here. One is the actual task, text, and this is, uh, the text itself is a couple different translations. Um, this is my favorite translation, and it's, um, it's something that uh, it was a translation from the Garchin Institute, uh, Magarjan Rinpoche. And the commentary that we'll be using, which actually has a slightly different translation of the actual text, but is from Dilgo Kinsey, 
who is this amazing, amazing what they call a Rime Lama, who he has teachers from all the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Just this incredible, incredible being. Dugo Kensei is absolutely incredible. One of the most prolific Buddhist teachers of, of our time. And so he wrote a commentary on the 37 verses. And in that, he gives us a textual outline. So we have the verses themselves, right? And then we have the meaning behind them. So as I mentioned, the whole path is outlined in these verses. And so you can kind of get... These are the cliff notes the cliff notes. 37 <laughs> verses are pith instruction on the Bodhisattva's way of life. And if we look... We could even dumb it down more. Like If we look at the textual outline... <laughs> This gives us the meaning behind each verse. So I'll just take one and I'll give you an example. So the introduction, and then we have part one. And part one of the 37 verses is the preparation. So the preparation starts with our motivation. right? They call it the four thoughts that turn the mind towards Dharma. The first thought that turns the mind towards Dharma, that even motivates us on the path, is the precious human life. Without this, it doesn't really matter. Without any motivation, it doesn't matter what practice we have or anything, right? We have no motivation to practice. It doesn't matter. But if we contemplate the precious human life, then we have motivation. So the first verse, right? So it says verse 1, precious human life. And so we can read, At this time, when the difficult-to-gain ship of leisure and fortune has been obtained... Ceaselessly hearing, pondering, and meditating day and night in order to liberate others and oneself from the ocean of cyclic existence is a bodhisattva's practice. This is the verse corresponding with precious human, contemplation of precious human life. So what they're saying is at this time when the difficult to gain ship, that means your human body of leisure and fortune. Difficult to gain because they say it's infinitely difficult and infinitely precious to have a human life in a human body we are conscious of consciousness we have the tree of life this amazing chakral system we can attain enlightenment in this form not all forms are susceptible to enlightenment all beings are innately enlightened but to be awake and aware of it right we weren't born uh, we were born with this precious vessel so to contemplate that, ceaselessly hearing, pondering, and meditating day and night in order to liberate others and oneself from the ocean of psychic existence. And again, this is the will of samsara. The ocean of psychic existence here is pertaining to the constant, you know, if you believe in such things as reincarnation, the constant birth, life, death cycle, right? So contemplating this. So this is, so this is the format, right? So we look at uh, at the textual outline, and then we could see a verse that corresponds to it. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And it's and it's really easy to get to to see the um, the actual theme of of each verse. And now, as we study, and now some of these verses, it's just thirty seven verses, and it will be on impermanence or. It'll be on the six perfections. It'll be mm -hmm. on the Brahma Viharas. These are really deep teachings that we could sit with and even do, you know, 
a three-month or a three-year retreat on just one of these aspects of the 37 verses, but why they're here and what they're so fantastic to have in hand is they could be daily reminders. We could read through this list every day, and in five minutes, we can take a hit and say, oh yeah, precious human life, oh yeah, generosity, oh yeah, patience, oh yeah, right? Like, this is why I love this little book, which I wish I had this little book to hand out. These are all the verses. And so this is a daily read, you know? So you can just read them. And they're the same, it's the same exact thing that you have in your hand. But it's this great little pocket book. And I can't believe I haven't lost this yet. I've carried this around for maybe seven years. I had this little thing. Carry it everywhere, right? It's a great little thing. So... That's a, an overview of how do we use this, what it's, what it's for. It's for this little daily hit. Okay, yeah, this is it. So knowing that this would take a lifetime to go over in depth all of these teachings, they're fantastic to have. Okay, so let's just go over. We're just going to take our time, which is turning impermanences. Just drifting away, like so fast. <laughs> um, wow. Um, I thought this would be like a three-part series, but it would be like a five-part <laughs> But I want to just take our time with it. So the introduction... So if we look at back to the verses, um, it says homage to, and then at all times I prostrate with respect, <laughs> respectful three doors. The, th- the three doors of the body, speech, and mind. The first line, at all times I prostrate with respectful three doors. So I prostrate with my body, with my body speech, and mind to the supreme guru and the protector Chenrezig. So this is the Buddha of compassion. The Buddha of compassion is to said to embody the compassion of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And in this way, there's extra pens. Who needs a pen? There's pens up here. Let me pass back a pen to... The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are not just from the Buddhist, from Buddhism. You know, Christ was a bodhisattva, Krishna is a bodhisattva. Uh, it's, it's not just like Buddhist teachers. This is all the Buddhas and bodhisattvas. And Chenrezig is, you could find in, in Hindu uh, religion, ancient Hinduism, you see the same deity, um, Avalokiteshvara. Uh, you see this Buddha of compassion in, in China, in, in Japan, Kuan Yin, uh, same Buddha of compassion. So the ruler of the universe, this is the embodiment of compassionate love, that aspect of enlightened mind, right? So they also, they will say the ruler of the universe or the protector, Chinrezig, through realizing that all phenomenon neither come nor go, strive solely for the welfare of migrators. And so through realizing that all phenomena neither come or go, so this is talking about ultimate truth. They're saying that ultimately, everything is, is emptiness or fullness, uh, this is kind of going right to the end of the path of ultimate truth, like everything just isness. Uh, even though that is fully realized, that 
they are still compassionate and want to remove all suffering from all beings, even though suffering doesn't really exist, they're saying. <laughs> it's like all is love, yet being that we're in delusion and we see duality and we see good and bad, and that this is absolutely our experience and it's a true experience, it's relative reality and there's ultimate reality. And even though this is true, Chinrezig, the Buddhas of compassion, come back and help us. The perfect Buddhas, source of benefit and happiness, arise from accomplishing the sublime Dharma, and as that accomplishment depends on knowing the Dharma practices, I will explain the Bodhisattva's practice. So this is Thogme saying, here I go, I'm I'm going to go ahead and talk about how to become a Bodhisattva. Okay, so we went over the first one. And again, if we look back to part one, this is the preparation. And verse two is the three poisons. So what are the three poisons? Attachment. Attachment. That would be attachment. Ignorance. Aversion. Ignorance. You said hatred. Yeah, hatred, ignorance, delusion. Yeah. So they're called different names, but attachment. Some of the most classic one is attachment, aversion, and ignorance. And ignorance doesn't mean like you didn't go to school. Not that kind of ignorance. Ignorance means ignorant to true reality. Right? Ignorance to uh, the right view of how things really are. Ignorance to how it all really works. Right? We have deluded mind. Right? So attachment, aversion, and, and ignorance. So of course attachment is to things that are good, aversion to things that are bad, and ignorance is see uh, truth. So the verse, the mind of attachment to loved ones wavers like water. The mind of hatred of enemies burns like fire. So that's the aversion. So the attachment and aversion. The mind of ignorance that forgets what to adopt and what to discard, so this is discernment, is greatly obscured. Abandoning one's fatherland is bodhisattva's practice. You say fatherland or homeland. And so, of course, we unpacked this one a little bit last time because it sounds like, wow, we got to like leave our friends and family and go off and into the into the forest and meditate and maybe actually go on this some more. And really, that is an outward thing that we can do. This is more an inner renunciation, right? This is inner renunciation. So this attachment and aversion comes uh, inwardly. So it's not saying uh, literally that we must do that. Although it's good, we see that retreat's very popular. And what do we do when we go on retreat? We just kind of leave it behind for a while, right? And we just kind of get away. And that attachment, a lot of times, to praise and gain and social status, to maybe all of us, like we have that little that friend or two in our life that when we do something good, we're going to definitely let them know. Like, hey, you know? <laughs> I made it, or whatever, you know, that kind of concept. <coughs> so that leaving of the friends and family, that's what it means, this, this um, uh, attachment to attachment. And also enemies. 
One way, the best way to deal with enemies is just to walk away, right, sometimes. Right. Yes? What about clinging as a way of looking at attachment? Clinging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same word, like attachment, clinging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So number three, relying on solitude, it kind of goes deeper into that. When harmful places are abandoned, disturbing emotions gradually diminish. Being without distraction, <coughs> virtuous endeavors naturally increase. Being clear-minded, certainty in the Dharma arises. Resorting to secluded places is a bodhisattva's practice. And so this is so very true. Sri Kaswara used to say, environment is stronger than will. And so going to those places that cultivate uh, the positive attributes, you know, going to meditation centers, going on retreat, coming here, being with spiritual friends, all of those things that create a beneficial attitude, so important, right? So important on the path. So mindfulness of impermanence and death, verse 4. Long-associated companions will part from each other. Wealth and possessions obtained with effort will be left behind. Consciousness the guest will cast aside the guest house of the body. Letting go of this life is a bodhisattva's practice. So impermanence is a very big topic in Buddhism. And death and impermanence in particular and it's, you know, so fun to think about. <laughs> and it, it would be odd not to have an aversion of that. To uh, It's only natural, right? But like we've said many times, and I think we're just covering this in the Wednesday night class, that Buddha was really into reality. He was really into what's real and didn't really care much of anything else because he said, like, once we could jive with what's real, then we're good. But once we love what is, then there's no problem. And what is is pretty obvious. But we just have to jive with it, you know. So, so this impermanence, the meditation on death and impermanence, is extremely liberating once we come in tune with it, that it's okay. Right? And the okay part comes when we reach a place that is beyond birth and death. You know, we did a thing on Wednesday night we could do real quick here, is just check into your awareness, the part of you that knows you're alive and breathing, and just just check in. And where does your awareness begin and end? What gender is your awareness? How old is your awareness? How much does your awareness weigh? Is your awareness good looking? Did your awareness get a new wrinkle? Does your awareness care if it got a new wrinkle? 
So just by the simple looking in, that which is looking, that which is looking at impermanence is not impermanent. It's looking at impermanence. So the more that we look at impermanence, the more impermanence is okay because we know that we're, we're filled with solidity in that which is watching impermanent come and go. And yet we feel completely stable. And Byron Katie says, the, the most stable ground you're ever going to feel is emptiness. It's so stable. Right? Or fullness. Whatever you want to call it. It's like, it's so stable. So secure. So safe. You're falling, but there's no ground. It's no problem. Right? Things are slipping away, but there's no thing to, to slip away. Nothing can slip away. It's, you're totally fine. Right? So this is, this is so, so peaceful. There's a, a really great course being taught up at Bajrapani by this monk. I'm trying to remember the title. It's so great. It said, The Anxiety of Impermanence and the Impermanence of Anxiety. The Anxiety of Impermanence and the Impermanence of Anxiety. It's the name of the course of how, like, when we study these things, it could stir up some anxiety. And yet that, there's just no reason for anxiety to exist because... The only thing that we're looking at is something that's on its way out. And of course, we cannot be what's on the way out because if it left, we would leave too. <laughs> so anything that's arising that we have an aversion to, not to worry. It's on its way out. And if we attach the I to that, then when it left, then we would leave. Say, I am depressed. I am sad. I have anxiety. If I was my anxiety, when my anxiety left, I would leave. So we cannot be that which is impermanent. Right? Those are all just existing within this awareness. And again, when we looked at how big was awareness, we looked at there's no problem. Awareness could hold all of this. Right? Because it's so big. Right? And especially when we start to rest in it for a while. Then, when we rest in it for a while, we see that it's inlaid innately with all these attributes of serenity and intense compassion and bodhicitta, this motivation to reach enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, already there. I don't think the air conditioning is working. The, the impermanence of a certain de- temperature is uh, obvious. <laughs> okay, verse 5 um, kind of speaks for itself, giving up bad company. So we'll move on. I'm going to move on to verse 7. Um, verse 6 is relying on a spiritual mentor. So the triple gem here is the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So if you read number seven, so this is taking taking refuge. So I'll just speak for a moment on that because it could use maybe a little unpacking. 
What worldly God himself also bound in the prison of psychic existence is able to protect others. Therefore, when refuge is sought, taking refuge in the undeceiving triple gem is the Bodhisattva's practice. So, in Buddhism, there's taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So, it's important to note right off the bat that this, this refuge is completely within us. So even though it's, it seems external, we're taking refuge in our innate Buddha nature through all three of those. It's our own innate Buddha nature that we're taking refuge in. So we're taking refuge in the fact that we already are what we're seeking and that we're taking refuge. This is the faith that I am, I am the enlightenment, I am the love, I am the peacefulness, I am that. Right? I take refuge in that. When things go crazy and I feel crazy, I take refuge in knowing that I already am a Buddha, a Christ, a Krishna. I already am that. And so what a guru would do was, was they hold that for us. Right? She is there holding that, holding your divine nature until we recognize it. So it's like this holding on to it and saying, until you recognize it yourself, I'm going to show you it in little pieces until you finally are filled up with it yourself. Right? So taking refuge in the Buddha, so this is like the historical Buddha, you can take refuge in, in Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha, but also the Buddha within. And then the Dharma. The Dharma is the enlightened teachings, the Dharma, all the teachings, right? And again, this could be not only Buddhist teaching, all teachings of truth. This is the Dharma. But then also the Dharma is, uh, this sounds funny, but depending on how they spell it, if it's a capital D or not, Dharma could also refer to all phenomena, all phenomena that's arising. Is dark. I forget which one's which. Which one's the which one's the actual teachings, or which one's which one is just the Dharma? So we know that the essence of all phenomena is Buddha nature, right? Like uh, this is Buddha nature. Everything's Buddha nature, right? In relative reality, we would say this is a voice recorder, right? But we know innately from its own side. It's, it's not just manifesting as a voice recorder. We're, la we're labeling that onto it, right? So innately, it just is. So if we have, hand this over to a small child or to an indigenous tribe, they're not going to say, oh, look at that, a Sony voice recorder. How awesome. Where's the record button? Let me go. You know, it's right. It's our imputation onto it, and it's only there because of relative reality that doesn't exist without something else existing, so it's dependent origination, right? not existing from its own side. It needs something else to exist. We need tall, we need short right, to have each other. We need number two and the number four to have the number three. It's existing like that, right? So all phenomena, it's nature. If we, if we meditate on phenomena, which we're doing, like in meditation, we do sound meditation, body meditation, breath meditation, and then we, we meditate on it until we see the essence of it. 
we're like a scientist in like quantum physics, right? We just look, 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 and then we're like, oh my gosh, you're not actually there. Quantum physics already figuring this out, yeah? They say already it's at the point where these particles don't exist unless the scientists think that they exist there, right? So it can get that subtle. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and then the Sangha, the most important piece, Sangha is spiritual friends, right? So this is the most important piece. Like the Buddha said when he was asked, you know, the disciple came up and said, Buddha, I think that the Sangha is 50% of my practice. And he says, no, it's 100% of your practice. 100% of our practice is relying on spiritual friends. Yeah. I'm sorry, you said the Buddha, the Dharma. And the Sangha. And the Sangha. Yeah. Yes. And in what sense is the Sangha internal? In what sense? You mentioned that all the yeah. are internal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're all sharing the same Buddha nature. So my Buddha nature, like Namaste, the divinity within me salutes the divinity within you. So even though you're holding me, and let's say um, my spiritual friend, let's say you're a fantastic example of generosity. Right? I see you, and you're such a generous being that you really add to my one of my six perfections of generosity. Although, generosity is innate within me. But you're an example, an external example of that. So, good question, though. So, for the last 15 minutes, I think it would be great um, if we could, because we just covered the, the, the preparation. And maybe, let's just break off into groups and... Maybe let's just talk about something that resonated with you within those first seven. So since um, we don't have much time left, um, maybe just a couple questions if, if people, um, if something just needs clarification, something just didn't sound right, if anyone had any questions on that. Some of the, some of the things as you go through the text are kind of obscure, it could seem kind of harsh um, and whatnot, so I just want to kind of unpacking that seemed uncomfortable for anybody or um, yeah. real quick it's not a question you had stated um, on number four uh, you said something that which is is noticing impermanence or something oh yeah what was mm -hmm. that little line or quote that you had said yeah that that which is looking okay so it's that faculty of being okay of you know, they, they don't like to label it, but it is a good stepping stone, the neutral observer, mm -hmm. the observer. Some traditions don't like to say that because then you're creating another something, something. Uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. But in the Tibetan tradition, a lot of times it's used, so you'll say, as a neutral observer, look at what's, what, what's arising. So that which is looking. But really the experience of that is the true meditation, right? The experience of being yeah. Who are what's the Yeah, anyone else? Yes. Um the the thing that kind of um 
I related to was, you know, the idea of the, the Dharma and the ultimate truth, and then back to kind of the introduction where you have, you know, ultimate truth and you have, or ultimate reality and relative reality, and um, staying in the space between those. So that, and what I mean is like, you know, being, being able to, you know, have empathy, for example, what happened in Dallas or Minneapolis or Baton Rouge or, you know, oh, da da da, um, without, without being overwhelmed and um, without dismissing it and jumping to, you know, this is all, it's really not reality anyway, you know, the, thank God there's a true reality, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. So, so, um, so my question is more about that, the navigating that in between territory yeah yeah um most difficult of all really you know when we definitely don't want to do a spiritual workaround they call it like when we or a spiritual bypass is uh you know we just bypass life saying oh everything's all true you know i was sitting with the venerable tenzin shogi one time and, and literally somebody stole towels from the hotel and they said oh it's all empty anyway she was like horrified you know it's like what um <laughs> I mean, I realize it's a bigger question, but it was just... Yeah, yeah. But I think it's important in, in today's times. And we have to know that that enlightened essence is bodhicitta. Enlightened essence is caring for others. Enlightened essence is caring for ourselves. Enlightened essence is waking up all beings. It's like, and this is where we do it. You know, heaven and earth are, and heaven and earth are right here. This is it. You know, this is it. I was around a, a monk at Vajrapani, and he'd always say, like out of the blue, I don't know where, this is it. This is it. This is it. Everywhere you go, this is it. We try to get us through our head that we're trying to go somewhere, but this is it. And this is where, this is where enlightenment is. It's, it's nowhere to go. This is it. Right? It's right here. So everything that we're talking about doing, it's, we're doing it here and now. And I love the term, I've said it before, but I love the term passionate non-attachment, passion, right? passion, non-attachment. So there's passion for life, passion for others, passion for enlightenment. And the unattachment part knows that we're collectively part of the whole, that we cannot single-handedly influence the whole, so we don't know the outcome. And this creates an amazing amount of resilience, amazing amount of resilience if we can, if we can work with passion and then know that the final outcome is an unknown. Right? But the work itself is it. Right? This is where the sila, the ethics comes in. This is all, all of that. Right? And, and enlightenment too. Like when Wendy mentioned Chogam Trumpa's great quote, where enlightenment's an accident and, and practice makes us more accident prone. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and so we do the practice, even though we already are what we're seeking. We do the practice. Right? Um, so we do because it's right. It's right to act and it's right to feel and it's right to do it. And that's why we do it. And we don't know the outcome. Okay, let's maybe finish with a little bit of meta <clears throat> practice. So we have our prayer box here. And so just setting the intention that everyone here in this prayer box
along with two of our Sangha members, uh, Katie and Zoe, their mothers have both underwent hip surgery this past week. Jan and Paula are their names. So praying for them, praying for the families, those that lost their life here recently, and it just seems to add up all the different situations, but just holding them all in our hearts. Holding our country, our world, the political figures all around the world, holding them in our hearts. Praying them, all beings, without exception. May all beings be happy, joyful at peace, resting in great serenity, and free from suffering. together and holding the space for kindness and stillness and togetherness and during these times it's so awesome I mean we could we always have that choice we live in Southern California we could be doing absolutely anything today <laughs> it's beautiful outside summertime I'm always amazed and inspired that we come here on such beautiful Southern California days and there's that many of us that want to come and, and do nothing for something, right? <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate non-doing is the ultimate doing. But, uh, but yeah, thank you. And just may we spread whatever's cultivated here going out, going out. We don't do this just to be in this room and sit, but we do this for our community and for our friends for ourselves, for our families, for the world. May we go out and practice engaged Buddhism, Buddhism like Lama Saridas says, self-help is out the window. There's no more self-help. We need community help. Mm-hmm. We need uh, environmental help. You know, we need, we need to come together. We work on ourselves. In this moment, we have something good come of it. Let's share it. Let's share it with, let's share a smile. Let's share a hug. Anything and everything that we can. You know, it all goes a long way. So thank you. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.